Hi, my name is Claire and I'm the mother of three teenagers with FESD. I'm Jessica, a PhD researcher specialising in educational interventions for children with FASD. And together we are the hosts of Spotlight on FASD, the UK's first podcast dedicated to shining a spotlight on fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. FASD is a condition caused by prenatal alcohol exposure that affects hundreds of thousands of children across the UK. And we're here to bring these conversations out of the shadows and make sure that no one living with FASD feels alone. Hi and welcome back to Spotlight on FASD. Um, this is the second part of our interview with the fascinating Jared Brown, who has um, kindly given us his time all the way from America to talk to us about FASD, um, well, in lots of aspects of life, but uh, uh, particularly in the criminal justice system and, and how he deals with that in his professional capacity. So thank you for hanging around and recording a, a second episode with us, Jared. We really appreciate it. Um, and we've, we've decided that we're going to talk about um, in the first episode, which you can, if you, if you, if you missed that, you can go back and listen to it. We touched on um, trauma and FASD and also the impact on um, families, the families of, of the, the, the support network around people with FASD, the impact it has on them and how that all feeds into the criminal justice system. So just kind of want to give you the floor again um, so we can learn from you. Thank you again. And I know we want to talk in this segment a little bit more about kind of the impact trauma has on people with FASD and then how that might intersect with the criminal justice system. So if you're not familiar with like the topic of trauma, I think just starting with some basic one-on-one stuff. We know prenatal alcohol exposure is a trauma in and of itself, but what other type of traumas could there be? Maybe the mother while pregnant was using alcohol, but was she involved in a domestic violence situation? that is a trauma. Was she also using any other types of substances? Maybe she was living in homelessness, long-term poverty. There's a lot of research on prenatal poverty exposure, tobacco use, prescription medication use. Was she not having adequate nutrition? Nutritional deficits can be a trauma and it can really impact in utero development. Now, when that child's born into an environment, was that child born in an environment where there's a lot of abuse? neglect, chaos. When you study trauma, it's imperative to understand the adverse childhood experiences research, the ACES research. Basically that research, the first study was published in 1998. Since that time, there's been just countless studies that have really looked at the impact that childhood trauma has on later functioning, mental health, physical health functioning. So that research really found kind of a dose-dependent relationship with trauma. That's just a fancy word of saying, the more trauma that childhood child had in development, even prenatally, there's a higher likelihood that that person is going to grow up and have more physical health problems, mental health problems. There's a big connection between higher trauma histories and asthma in, child, in adulthood, obesity, sleep issues, broken bone histories, depression, anxiety, the list goes on and on and on. So it is imperative to understand prenatal alcohol exposure is a trauma in and of itself. But now if you have these other types of traumas, it can often exacerbate many of the things that a lot of people with FASD deal with. 
So we have the ACES research. That's very important. You can find a lot of great information online. But there's also something called complex and developmental trauma. This is typically going to be trauma that happened during critical stages of development early in childhood, and it's not a one-time event. It's going to be repetitive. It can be cumulative. It can, trauma in and of itself can impact brain development. Last segment, we talked a lot about executive dysfunction. Trauma can lead to executive dysfunction. Trauma can impact attachment. It can contribute to self-regulation concerns. All of these factors, as that child gets older and if proper supports and services and interventions were not in place, this child is oftentimes going to be labeled with a ton of different mental health diagnoses. They will absolutely struggle in a K through 12 environment without proper supports. So we have complex developmental trauma. There's also something called betrayal trauma, whole bunch of literature on betrayal trauma. A lot of these intersect with each other, but betrayal trauma is basically you're being betrayed by a caregiver, a loved one, someone who is supposed to be there for you. And if you've had betrayal trauma, a lot of times this is going to contribute to trust issues. It's going to contribute to vulnerability. It's going to contribute to like empathy deficits in some cases, even problems with intimacy as that person gets older. And that can really have a negative impact on their relationships with other individuals. There's also, you have post-traumatic stress disorder. If, I know you guys are in the UK, but just being aware of the trauma and stress-related disorders in the DSM-5. I believe you guys use the ICD-11. There's a complex PTSD diagnostic criteria in there. I would recommend just learning at least the basics of these things. Now, trauma is probably the biggest topic of them all in mental health tens of thousands of articles on it. So again, there's a lot to remember, but the takeaway point is if you work with people with FASD, more times than not, never 100% of the time, but a very high percentage of people with FASD have also been impacted by other types of trauma. Yeah. That oftentimes, it's just like fuel on the fire. If they've had FASD and other types of trauma, a lot of the things that the individual is dealing with are often exacerbated. And some of the biggest things that are impacted by trauma, as it's relevant to FASD, executive functioning impairments are going to be exacerbated. Sleep issues are going to be exacerbated. Prenatal alcohol exposure can damage parts of the brain that are responsible for attachment. But trauma after the child's born can also exacerbate attachment dysregulation. And I don't want to get too far deep in the weeds for your audience, but there's something called the HPA access. It's called the hypothalamus, pituitary adrenal access. That's our stress response system. A lot of research shows that prenatal alcohol exposure can damage that part of the brain that's related to our stress response system. But other types of trauma can damage that parts of the brain too. Why should you care about that? Because if somebody has HPA access dysfunction, that can impact their mood, their attention, their memory, their just functioning capabilities in day-to-day -day life. It's often associated with a ton of mental health problems. A lot of times it can be a trigger in some cases for emotional lability. That's just a fancy word of saying kind of like a roller coaster ride of emotions. It can increase irritability. 
anger control problems and the list goes on. So there's a lot of things to think about when we talk about trauma. I think um, something that I want to pick up on, especially for a lot of our listeners and our followers, is um, when it comes to children who've been in the care system and who are, and who are um, happily adopted in a very, very secure environment, a lot of the families that I've worked with around trauma over the years will say um, or have maybe been led to believe by professionals that, oh, you're all right because there's not there's like there's not loads of trauma here. Um, say for example, the baby was removed, um, f- you know, literally from birth. I was old, into a, a foster placement, and then the baby stayed there until it was placed with an adoptive family. Now, the removal from birth mother for that, for, you know, from from that that little baby human removing from the the person who grew that baby and no matter no matter what the situation was no matter how stressful it was that is this that has the same impact as a catastrophic bereavement has on on the development of the brain so that's one catastrophic bereavement that 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 child has dealt with in the first few hours of life and then quite often in the UK um I think it's changed a little bit now so that the idea is that it should be a bit swifter. But certainly in the past, there was a a timeline of 40 weeks where um, a child could be kept in the care system. You know, even if the plan was adoption, there was like a 40 week window. And so a lot of people will let and I used to believe this. If a child was removed from birth, then with one foster carer in a secure placement um, with that attachment up until they were kind of around about nine to ten months old, then you think like there's not a lot of trauma. The trauma stopped. There was no trauma happening. But when they are then removed from that foster carer who they've attached to, that's another catastrophic bereavement. Um, so th- so even when on paper you think you, you know you, you've got an idea of what's happened in utero, but then on paper you think there hasn't actually been any more trauma after that. There has massive, massive trauma. And quite often we, we are, you know, as a society, we are making our young people and our children who suffered this just burden this themselves without without acknowledging it and without trying to help them. So, you know, the I, I don't believe that you can have FASD without trauma because it, yeah. it, it is a trauma. Um, it is. But then, but then the complex developmental trauma that is, and I think that's something that, that is, you know, well, it is just so complex, but it's so widespread and that alters brain development as well, doesn't it? So all of these things could be going on that are altering the actual biology of a person's brain. You know, so I think that's the bit that fascinates me because it's not, it's not, um, it's not an academic's theory. It's not someone's opinion. It's actually, you know, we've proven it. It's, it's biology. It's science. This is fact. This is what happens. So we can't, you know, we need to find a way to deal with it. So I think um you have to if 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 you are meaningful at all about working in the world of FASD and supporting somebody with FASD the first thing you need to do is learn about trauma and and the impact that trauma has and how to behave in a trauma informed way um and sadly so many services who are designed to deal with children and young people just aren't you know they they, they don't think it's for them the 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 trauma doesn't impact them so 
yeah, it's trauma is my real um, fascinating subject that I'm pretty obsessed with because I live with it every single day. And it, and you know, 15 years ago, if somebody had have asked me how, what do you think trauma would look like in everyday life? Someone living with trauma, what do you think it would look like? I would never in a million years be able to guess what it actually is and how how it manifests itself in everyday life with my kids. It's it's huge. It is. And, you know, trauma-informed care is a big buzzword in a lot of the helping professions. Most of that research looks at what happened after the person was born. Mm -hmm. You have nine months of potential types of trauma. That happened before birth. And I, I get calls, I get emails all the time from caregivers wanting assistance, advice, resources, because a lot of these parents adopted the child at birth, but they're still seeing a lot of issues, which surprised mm-hmm. them. And a lot of them didn't understand FASD at the time. But what happened before birth? Prenatal alcohol exposure is a trauma. I do a lot of work in the area of other types of prenatal trauma. There's so many things that can impact that developing child in utero. Tobacco, excessive amounts of caffeine. There's a whole line of research literature on maternal depression and maternal anxiety. If that mother was extremely depressed or very anxious or even sleep deprived during pregnancy, all of those factors can impact development. Maybe she was going through a lot of stress. Stress in and of itself is not a bad thing, but if it reaches the level of toxic stress exposure, toxic stress is more uncontrollable, it's cumulative. That can not only have an impact on that mother, but that toxic stress exposure through higher levels of cortisol and those stress hormones can negatively impact the child's brain development as well. So there's a lot of factors to keep in mind. But a lot of times parents will do all the right things. They adopt the child. They do all of these wonderful interventions. And there's still problems that arise. The one thing, this is just my own opinion. Please consult with your healthcare provider before doing anything like this. But a lot of people use trauma and attachment-based interventions early on in life, which is fantastic and necessary. But also don't forget the impact nutrition has. Mm -hmm. Work with a nutritionist. Absolutely, nutrition plays such a huge and vital role in brain development early in life. Now, there's not a lot of research on FASD and nutrition, there's some. But if we look at the autism literature, a very high percentage of people with autism have digestive health issues. And there's a huge connection between digestive health and brain health. Very important, I think, to work with a nutritionist, your doctor, a functional medicine specialist. Make sure you you are having the right nutrition, the right kind of healthy living structure in place, because that plays a vital role as well. As that person gets older, there's a lot of other interventions to consider neural feedback as the person gets older. There's some research on neural feedback, art-based interventions, equine therapy, animal-assisted interventions. There's a lot of things to try. There's something called Lego therapy that comes out of the autism literature. There's not any on FASD, but it might be worth looking into. It's called Lego-based therapy. 
So there's a lot of things to do that maybe even if it doesn't, if there's no research literature on it per se, if it works for people with ADHD, it works for people with autism, consult with your healthcare provider. Is it worth trying? If it doesn't work, something like that's probably not going to have any side effects because it's not a medication. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing to do as well, get sleep under control as much as humanly possible. Sleep is one of the number one things that we need for healthy living and early childhood brain development. So focusing on those early interventions with trauma and attachment, but taking it a step further, maybe nutrition, sleep intervention, and some other things. Anything you can do to engage in cognitively stimulating activities with that young child too in a healthy way is a good thing. Again, we don't know what's going to happen as that child gets older, but we know early intervention is key. And working with a multidisciplinary team of professionals who understand FASD is key as well, but also seeking support and services for the entire family system. Because if that family system is taxed and stressed out, all of that negative energy can impact health and wellness too. So everything we can do to help that family system get the stress down and get them the supports and services they need in theory should be a good thing. I think um, well, I want to touch back a little bit on the nutrition and the sleep. One of the things that I used to question, so I, I kind of whittled down to um, ruling things out that, were, that would help, that would make a difference, that wouldn't make a difference. And this is when I did not know that I was dealing with FASD with my children because it was nearly 10 years before they got the diagnosis. Um and I found that I was what I always felt that I was always years behind. I, I always felt like I was in a much younger stage with them with regards to food and sleep than they actually were chronologically. So I would have to put the amount of effort into food planning, snacks, um, gaps between consuming food when they were 10 that I did when they were two. And, I, and and getting up on a morning, I mean, there's no such thing as morning and night in, in my house anymore. It is just between the three of them, we are awake on a 24-hour clock um, and it's like a 24-hour diner. So it's, you never feel lonely. There's never those moments of like these bleak, lonely moments in the middle of the night because there's all weird, somebody awake and all of the lights are always on. So, you know, it's not all bad, but I think that I have found that when they were younger, and had I known exactly what I was dealing with then, which is why early a diagnosis is vital to changing lives and saving lives, I would have probably put even more effort and even more stringent kind of routines with sleeping than I already did, knowing the impact sleep was going to have. So I would get up on a morning, we would get up on a morning, and f my entire purpose of the day would be around like like with Jess and her newborn baby, it would be around sleeping and eating. And and from getting up, I would be working towards the best environment to be able to get them to sleep again at a certain time. And I wasn't wishing me days away. I'm not going to lie. Some, some days I would wake up and count how many hours it was going to be till I thought there could be asleep again. But I think anyone with three kids under three would feel that as well. Um, so that's just normal motherhood tiredness, I think. But when I look back now, 
and you know I would get comments from people like people close to us would be like well it's all right just let the, the they don't well just like I would say well can I kind of do that because she's going to miss a nap and I know that, that people would be thinking she's four <laughs> what, like why does she need to be having that nap she'll be fine if she misses it no it will be catastrophic if she misses it and then the impact on the other two so I didn't realize the the measures that I was putting in place around and and it's one of the first things I tell people now so think toddler in most situations so at any one time in my car there is a box with um bottled drinks bottled water snacks nuts crisps like the because most of the time I will like like a lion tamer try and throw some food <laughs> at the situation to see if it levels things off and quite often it, it quite often it does and you know sometimes I've uh, you know and my daughter's so good at explaining things and she can be absolutely losing her mind and she doesn't know what's wrong and she's so angry and she's really really dysregulated and she'll have something and sometimes it's very difficult to get something to eat into her she'll have something to eat and then it's like oh <laughs> that's all yeah, and it's it's and you don't think that it can have that impact at that age when the teenagers, but it is it is huge. It's enormous. I've talked to enough caregivers over the years that they they the caregivers have taught me so much too. The care, in my opinion, caregivers are the true experts on on this topic. They live it day in and day out. But I've always heard too fatigue management so important with this population. You kind of touched on that, but. If they don't get a nap in sometimes or a good night's sleep, their brain is already not working. Mm -hmm. Now they become even more dysregulated, sensory overloads even more intense. So fatigue management, understanding the red flag indicators, the cues when that person's getting tired. I've heard that repeatedly. It's been helpful. A couple other things I've heard from caregivers over the years that they have found helpful, they've shared with me, regulate blood sugar levels. If that yeah child skips a meal that's not good the blood sugar levels dip too high or if they're overeating it spikes too high not good i've heard many times too stay hydrated drink plenty of water consistency structure predictability all of those things so important a big thing i, I give a, i'm giving more talks on not necessarily fasd related but i see as anecdotally monitor screen time use there is such an addictive tendency to being on the gadgets, movies, the screen. There's so much research to show how that can impact mental health and emotional health and behavioral health. Anecdotally, that's one of the number one reasons why caregivers reach out to me for like suggestions and ideas is my child, my adult son or daughter is addicted to the screen. They're up all night. They're just online. And again, that's a whole nother can of worms because that opens up the door to some vulnerability and victimization and talking to people online maybe they shouldn't be talking to, giving away money to people that mm -hmm. they don't know. But it also, the impact it has on their energy and mood and health, so, so important. A couple of things also to consider that are not necessarily in the FASD research literature but maybe consulting with your healthcare provider, there's something called therapeutic gardening. There is a lot of health benefits of getting outside and gardening and being in nature. And there's actually research that's called therapeutic gardening. There's some research on drum-based interventions, yeah. not, not FASD related, but other populations that have similar symptoms. 
getting the individuals in a drum group where they're hitting drums and they're processing emotions, those are really have been helpful for other clients on the neurodevelopmental spectrum, not necessarily FASD. Can't stress enough the importance of exercise, but the question always comes up, well, my child has mobility issues. Mm -hmm. Obviously talk to your healthcare provider before doing any of these things, but heated pool therapy could be an option. Chair yoga, something, getting that movement going, stimulating the brain, all of these things are good for any human being. And early on too, maybe it's working with a sensory specialist, a speech language pathologist, the more professionals that you can work with and target some of those deficit areas, especially when they understand FASD, I think is a wonderful thing. Who knows what's going to happen long term, but the more positive things you do for that child early on, you would think as that person gets older, it's going to pay off. I can um, give an example of one of the one of the best tools to get my 16 year old off a screen with with one of these um, with his one to one support worker was they would walk. They had permission to do it. They would walk to the middle of a, um, a local wood and they would chop wood for maybe two hours. Holy, that's great. With an axe, you know, so it was supervised, it was safe, mm -hmm. but just so a little bit like the the repetitive um, sensation of the drumming, but also the, you know, the, the force that was needed and how mm -hmm. satisfying it was to so the sensory input, the noise of it, the action of it. Action as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and that was something that he really looked forward to. They didn't do anything with the wood. It was just, they just used to chop. Wood. That's awesome. Fascinating. Wood. Yeah. And it was, it really, really, and what that did was that led to him being able to engage, to be able to talk about his next move into college. And, and that was, you know, and, and, it, and his, his, um, his one-to-one -one support worker, he just came up with that because after working with him for a year, he and, and when he started, he knew absolutely nothing about FASD. Now he's an FASD specialist for the organization he works for because it's just, it's gripped him now and he's, there's no getting out. Um, he had just, he deduced over the space of a year, he was able to narrow down, you know, working with my son, getting to know him, getting to see what helped him, what motivated him. And he was just like, we're going to chop some wood with an axe because he just he'd narrowed it down over the space of 18 months and he absolutely knew that was what he needed and I, mean, I think they both enjoyed it as much as each other it was therapy for them both but and and they just kept going to do that until he just didn't need to do it anymore and it That's was you know, and and I would never have been able to get him in a room with a therapist I would never have been able to get him in a room at an appointment with any kind of, for any kind of intervention. But that was that that was the equivalent of probably a year's therapy for him. Um, you know, so therapy. Yeah, I hear repeatedly not a good it doesn't work like insight based things. It's what you skills building, coaching, modeling, teaching, role playing, hands on things is mm -hmm. The way to go. But I think what you touched on as well, and we're touching, we're talking about the family and burnout of the caregivers. Mm -hmm. I have always, always maintained that if if you have an option, if it's an option and if it's viable to work solely with the caregivers as a as a professional, as a therapist, mm -hmm. as a therapeutic worker, do it with them rather than with the child or the young person, because they are the they are you know I deliver round the clock therapy to my children seven days a week yeah. so if 
and, and work, you wouldn't be able to engage and work directly with my children, but I benefit from all of that knowledge and from that input. You know, so so for me to get that to then pass it on um, to my children, you know, that's and I know a lot of people because for all the right reasons, a lot of therapeutic workers, a lot of professionals, they desperately want to do something to help that child or that young person and they want to work with them. But quite often because of trauma and attachment, it's not the right thing. And and they're not in the, they're not they're not in any way near a safe place enough mentally to to engage. So not only can it sometimes not be the right thing, it can often be harmful, which is the absolute opposite to what that professional wants it to be. But but that's the truth of it. It, it can be. So I think um, you know for the professionals listening to this, if you can't ever get through or or, or kind of get that young person. In a, in a position or in a place where you can work directly with them, please don't ever underestimate the power of working with their parent or their caregiver. Um, and, and, and don't, you know, just do that work with them.